0: section twenty one of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. lecture seven mid victorianism w m thackeray part three the pedigrees especially of the rising families are traced very carefully do you remember mr foker the charming young man of fashion in pendennis his unfailing good humour his shrewdness his gaudy garments his advice to pendennis when he was infatuated with miss fotheringay and when he was going the pace at oxbridge his love for miss amory and his recovery when he found out how heartless she was though he plays a minor part his character is as subtle a delineation as any by this master hand now notice how we get this blend of aristocracy and commercialism for foker is a true gentleman honourable chivalrous with healthy instincts yet with a good deal of the man of business in him for all his idleness and eccentricity a man not easily duped in the virginians george warrington when lately married and very poor gets to know a mr volker a rich vulgar but kindly brewer our hero's grandfather his father has anglicized himself and become mr volker whose porter is of a world-wide celebrity he marries an earl's daughter and yet insists on the family beverage being served at every meal and major pendennis feels bound to taste it when he dines though the old gentleman found it disagreed with him in harry foker the young man of pleasure we have the half-and-half beer and the peerage and no bad blend either in barnes newcomb we have a less attractive type of the same class the newcombs are as humble in origin but more pretentious than the fokers they do not parade the family business being bankers but have discovered a noble ancestry. Their family can be traced back to the barber-surgeon of Edward the Confessor. Thomas Newcombe, the second founder, had, however, to begin as a very intelligent factory hand, who left his native Newcombe, made a moderate fortune, gallantly returned and married a girl of his own class, and became the father of that prince of gentlemen, Colonel Newcombe, whose son, Clive, thackeray wishes us to admire though i confess i find him insufferable then his first wife dies and thomas flies at higher game he woos and wins the great heiress pietist and philanthropist sophia alethea hobson to the amazement of the serious clapham circle in which he moves their twin sons are sir bryan who marries lady anne barnes daughter of the earl of kew whose eldest son is lord wallham all neighbouring suburbs of london give the name to this aristocratic family and hobson a thorough man of business who marries a lawyer's daughter and affects the farmer whilst his wife professes to admire talent hobson is shrewd Bryan pompous and as the former says of himself you must get up very early in the morning to take him in if in foker we have the attractive side In Sir Brian Newcombe's eldest son, Barnes, we have the other aspect of the blending of birth and business. Had Harry Fokker sprung from two noble grandfathers, he might have been just as simple-hearted and good-natured as he now appears, like Lord Southdown in Vanity Fair, or Ethel Newcombe's lover, Lord Kew, but he would not have been quite so shrewd, for it is no impeachment of a man's natural good sense that he should have been taken in by the purely imaginary virtues of a blanche amory but in barnes newcomb we see the mixture of the hardness of a well-bred man of the world and the business ability inherited from a commercial ancestry i cannot resist quoting at some length the introduction of barnes to his uncle colonel newcomb at mrs hobson newcomb's evening party the description of it is sketched for the colonel's benefit by frank honeyman the popular preacher the jew with a beard as you call him is herr von lungen the eminent hautboy player at the piano accompanied by mademoiselle lebrun is signor mezzo caldo the great baritone from rome professor quartz and baron hammerstein celebrated geologists from germany are talking with their illustrious confrere, Sir Robert Craxton, in the door. Do you see that stout gentleman with snuff on his shirt? The eloquent Dr. MacGuffig of Edinburgh talking to Dr. Ettore, who lately escaped the Inquisition at Rome in the disguise of a washerwoman, after undergoing the question several times, the rack and the thumbscrew. That splendid man in the red fez is Kerbash Pasha, another renegade. I deeply lament to say, a hairdresser from Marseilles by name Monsieur Fercho. But I need not trouble you by reading more. Mrs. Hobson Newcombe could not get the aristocracy, so she collected notabilities and felt herself intellectual. As you will remember, the guest of the evening was Romam Lal otherwise his excellency otherwise his highness the chief proprietor of the diamond mines of golconda with a claim of three millions and a half upon the east india company the rumum was the lion of the year and went everywhere and the whole company was amazed when with the air of the deepest humility he saluted colonel newcomb who in his old-fashioned coat and diamond pin was being mistaken for a moldavian boyar at this juncture barnes comes in and makes himself known to his uncle the art with which the scene is drawn is consummate barnes behaves as a thoroughly well-bred man greets the colonel with unaffectedly good manners snubs his aunt by a few quiet words and finally turns to his uncle to discuss the rumum. i know he ain't a prince any more than i am then barnes warms to the subject and frankly asks the colonel to tell him if the bank can trust the indian magnate the young man of business had dropped his drawl or his languor and was speaking quite good-naturedly and selfishly had you talked for a week you could not have made him understand the scorn and loathing with which the colonel regarded him barnes is of course the villain of the piece but the interest in his character to us lies in the fact that he reveals in its worst aspect the blending of two types the aristocratic with its pride and narrow exclusiveness and the commercial with its rapacious selfishness in many respects the Newcombs is a tragedy as is seen in colonel newcomb's quarrel with barnes and the tale of his ruin in the affair of rumham lau's bundle couldn't bank and the motive is the struggle for wealth by one of a class whose first object ought to have been honour and to whom money should have been always a secondary consideration let us however turn now to lighter themes one of thackeray's most delightful characters is the old countess of kew the sister of the late marquis of stain and the grandmother of lord kew and ethel Newcombe the old lady frankly and with a cynicism worthy of her brother accepts the new order she marries her daughter lady anne to sir brian Newcombe with complete disregard of the young lady's preference for her cousin tom points sir brian Newcombe, she would say is one of the most stupid and respectable of men anne is clever but has not a grain of common sense they make a very well assorted couple Her flightiness would have driven any man crazy who had an opinion of his own. She would have ruined any poor man of her own rank. As it is, I have given her a husband exactly suited to her. He pays the bills, does not see how absurd she is, keeps order in the establishment, and checks her follies. She wanted to marry her cousin Tom Points when they were both very young and proposed to die of a broken heart. A broken fiddlestick. She would have ruined Tom Points in a year, and has no more idea of the cost of a leg of mutton than I have of algebra. Her ladyship was under no delusions as to the antiquity of her husband's family, the founder of which was a fashionable doctor who had attended George the Third. She recognized that the great houses to which she belonged had had their day, and was resolved to make the best she could out of the world she lived in she had the brains and the character to make that world thoroughly uncomfortable if it did not bow to her will and with her the old order began to come to an end was my grandfather a weaver asks ethel Newcombe. her answer is how should i know and what on earth does it matter my child except the gaunts the howards and one or two more there is no good blood in england you are lucky in sharing some of mine. My poor Lord Q.'s grandfather was an apothecary at Hampton Court and founded the family by giving a dose of rhubarb to Queen Charlotte. As a rule, nobody is of good family. Leaving the novels, we come to the Book of Snobs, where the storming of society is seen at a later stage. In Chapter 7, on some respectable snobs, we have the rise of the noble family of de Mogens. The first of this ancient family who reappeared above the horizon in these degenerate days was a Mr. Muggins, banker, army, contractor, smuggler and general jobber, lent money to a royal personage and by way of payment was made a baronet. His son paid undue attention to Miss Flack at a country ball. Captain Flack, her father, offered the alternative of a duel or marriage, in accordance with the custom of the irish nation to which he belonged and of the age young allured smith muggins preferred to marry the lady and on the death of his father became a baronet the editor of flukes peerage found him a pedigree the family was really founded by the patriarch shem whose grandson began to draw up its pedigree on a papyrus scroll now in the possession of the family in the days of bodicea Hogan Mogan of the Hundred Beeves aspired to marry that warlike princess. Whether he wooed and also won is not stated, but he married someone and became the ancestor of Mogan of the Golden Harp, the black fiend son of Mogan, ancestor of the princes of Pontidoodalum. These succumbed to the English kings, but their representative, David Gomdemogens, fought bravely at Agincourt, and from him Sir Thomas Muggins was descended. This sounds a mere satire. I turn to Burke's Peerage, 1895. I find that the son of a famous contractor whose father was celebrated for having begun as a navvy and ended as a millionaire many times over, sprang from a very ancient Norman family, which became obscure in 1603, and rose again to fame two centuries later i notice that a brewer now a baron whose beer had a world-wide fame was the scion of a noble house the first of whom was gemellus who flourished when henry Beauclerc ruled the land from eleven hundred 1100 to eleven thirty four one of the ladies of this famous family was christened by the delightful but unusual name of temperance but this was in the reign of charles i before the brewery was established are not such pedigrees as ridiculous as any fiction of the brain? But how much is it to be regretted that the writers of our peerages do not study the book of snobs? They would at least avoid parodying it at the order of their ennobled patrons. Disraeli, like Thackeray, exposed this business in his novel Sybil or the Two Nations. I need not say, however, that it was not because of their descent from the great Hogan Mogan. That the de Mogans got into society. They pushed, they schemed, they suffered rebuffs undaunted, and at last they won the coveted reward. Lady de Mogans cut her friends as she ascended, and at last became a recognized power in the great world. The day had scarcely dawned when Thackeray died, when instead of wealth's striving to win a place in society, society sought to obtain the recognition of the very rich his satire had not to expend itself on aristocrats who hastened to abase themselves before the millionaire and snobbery changed from a worship of rank to a worship of wealth our author has often been criticised for his abuse of the nobility it has been said that it was prompted by envy i venture to doubt this To be as great a satirist as he, a man must feel deeply and have a siwa indignatio against a great evil. This, like all his predecessors, Thackeray had. He saw the hardness that the spirit of his age engendered. In all Thackeray's novels and writings we see how ashamed the new aristocracy was of the trades and businesses by which they made their money, and how contemptuous the real aristocracy was of ennobled trade. Lord Steyne sneers at the idea of his son's wife being a banker's daughter. The Newcombs conveniently forget the weaver from which they sprang. We are sneeringly reminded that Mr. Wenham's father was a coal-merchant. Major Pendennis conveniently forgets that his brother was a mere apothecary. But this was not part of the old tradition of England a very little time before people of high birth felt no shame in being in trade the nelsons are as good a family as any yet nelson himself served as a common sailor before the mast and his near relatives kept shops in small towns let me read a passage from a recently published book on wordsworth dorothy wordsworth lived first with her maternal grandparents and was not happy with them she loved an open-air life, and was held closely indoors, serving, in fact, in a mercer's shop, which they kept. In 1788 a change came, for she went to live with her uncle at Fornsett Rectory near Norwich. The rector was also a canon of Windsor, and in the summer of 1792 Dorothy was meeting King George Third and his family, the princesses at least, and going to races and balls. Trade was no bar to good society till it was able to buy it, and there was a great mingling of classes now rigidly separated. This feeling of shame for having practised some perfectly reputable calling has had, I believe, very serious results. It has made for the separation of employers and employed. It has caused people to take less pride in integrity and thoroughness and made them desirous of amassing wealth in order to enjoy ease it has tended to make those of the second generation more desirous to pose as nobles than to follow the calling of their fathers it has destroyed a commercial aristocracy and has put a plutocracy in its place it tended for a time to substitute prudery and respectability for real christianity and before the war at least even these poor substitutes were growing so out of fashion as to be regretted it has also deepened the rift between classes between the old nobility and the poor there was a certain sympathy the humbler class appreciated the fact that their rulers were gentlemen they liked their courage their courtesy they did not even object to being ordered by them their very vices were comprehensible but they have never had any fellow feeling with a plutocracy. With their present paymasters, they have been more impatient than with their former rulers. And the difficulties of the present age are in no small degree due to the snobbery which Thackeray denounced. End of section 21.